Welcome to Fine Art Fiona, a podcast which shares my conversations with the many artists, curators and collectors I meet on my art travels who, like me, have a passion for art. My name is Fiona McIntosh. Today I'm chatting with artist Elvis Richardson, whose art practice reveals the value and mystery of an ordinary life, as well as the harsh reality of its precariousness. She gives a voice to those stories often deemed less interesting. Our conversation takes place across Wurundjeri and Kamaragal lands, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands and pay my respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. A significant part of Elvis's practice includes a major research project, the Countess Report. It is both art and advocacy, collecting and analysing data on gender imbalance across the art world and was the impetus for the hashtag KnowMyName movement. Hi Elvis, great to meet you online and welcome to Fine Art Fiona. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. At first glimpse, your work has an almost beguiling modesty about it. From images that you found online or quite literally on the street, images of ordinary domestic settings, old snaps and slides of unremarkable people caught in often unguarded moments. How does this form the foundation of your art practice? Well, it's a personal story, really. Um, it comes from, like, the fact I'm adopted and I think I've always looked at imagery of families and home and places like that as, you know, in this kind of really objectified way um, where I've, you know, I guess like in a sense of like where do I belong and when one is adopted, you often don't have that anchoring feeling. So, you know, I could project or listen on or look at these kinds of imagery and I just found them fascinating because I guess I felt like, you know, it could, that could be me there or I could I could project myself into these different kinds of um, scenarios. And, and I think that, you know, something ordinary it's, um, is more truthful than, you know, the kind of staged or, um, overproduced imageries of oneself or where one, you know, how we express ourselves in ordinary ways. I went to boarding school and um, at first a period when I was in high school and it was all about the family photograph album and telling stories through that of who you were and where you were from and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, that that's part of it. All of those things kind of come together. And when I was an artist, I didn't think that when I went to art school, I didn't think that these subjects were worthy of art. I thought it had to be something more extraordinary or theoretical or about art itself. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm kind of glad I didn't go down that path and I just did what I was interested in because uh, as one only can do, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah about being truthful to yourself. So so what was the light bulb moment? Was it at art school or was it after art school that you realised that there was cachet with these sorts of images? Yeah, I I hoped that, you know, when I was doing things, they did catch attention and land in certain kind of ways. Um, you know, I remember being chosen for the New South Wales Travelling Art Scholarship with a found image like back in the 90s and kind of feeling like, you know, I was on a track there. But I also remember um, that same image being used as a invitation to an exhibition 
called Mondo Kane that Mark Hislop put together at Herringbone Gallery. This is going back in the day. And um, Bruce James did a review of the show and kind of talked about the image that was used and how it was a found image and, you know, how anyone, that could be anyone. And he didn't really see it as art. Like there was this kind of disconnect and or the risk I felt I was taking was that people didn't see what I was doing as art or where I was trying to, I was trying to show the art in the everyday, I suppose. And, um, and sometimes that was not seen as, you know, valid. I know Bruce. I know Bruce well. And, uh, you know, he has a deep respect and passion for things visual and the visual arts. And, and with that comes a very open mind about how to engage with art and how to critique it. So I imagine if that work challenged Bruce, it was a, it, it was a bit of a groundbreaking work then in itself. Oh, well, that's a, that, that's a nice way to think about it, I guess. That makes me kind of go, oh, no, at the time I remember, it's always been, I guess, a little bit of a, a threat for me because of the adoption stuff I was mentioning of, you know, what's valid, mm. what's legitimate, you know, what's real, what's, you know, kind of taken as the real thing. Um, I guess it's got to do with legitimacy, um, which is probably why I remember that story. But, um, yeah, no, yeah, thank you, I guess. That's a nice compliment. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's great to challenge critics. And that, and that image in itself was... I mean, the story around it is interesting. You found it on the street. Is it? Is it the found pets? Yeah, that's up? right. Yeah, yeah. I did. I was just walking along, walking my dog, and I noticed it, like on the street. It after a rainy day, it was in amongst all these leaves in the gutter and um in my neighbourhood. And of course, at the time, slides were quite um you know recognisable because we use them in the art world a lot like that was our lecturers used them you had to document your photo your work with them um so they had a kind of this very kind of legitimate documentary kind of feel about them yeah so it popped out to me immediately I recognised it just sticking out of the leaves there and picked it up and of course the image was just so fascinating um yeah I couldn't help but share it, I guess, yeah. So, so, so maybe just a brief description of the image for people who won't know it, um, and I appreciate they're listening as opposed to seeing, but I think it can be described relatively easily. Do you want to Yeah, just, uh, I, that was it? probably, the, well, I guess it has three things, three main things. It's a landscape. There's two objects in the landscape, or there's a woman and there's a car, and then I guess there's also the photographer who was taking the image, and that's one of the things we forget when we're looking at imagery, that of that photographer being that other person in the landscape. And um, what was interesting about the image was the it looked like an Australian landscape. It was a sunny day, bright sunlight. the The figure, the female figure, reads as Asian. Um, she has a kind of look of impatience on her face. Um, she's kind of standing on one leg with a bit of attitude, I suppose. Mm -hmm. the, the car's like a mini minor, an English mini minor. Um, and I liked this kind of bringing together of, you know, this um, different, you know, forces, I suppose, to do with nationalities and to do with belonging and, you know, to do with yeah what Australia is and um, 
things like that, I guess. Yeah. So there are a couple of things in there for me. One is, is that, was that usual for you to just go around looking for things and images, finding images elsewhere, or was it a, a step in a new direction? Were you, um, were you, were you previously creating the images yourself or staging the images yourself? Was this new yeah, to actually no, find no, something it, and it, go? This- it wasn't new to collect them, but it was probably new to exhibit them. Um, mm-hmm. I've always been interested in true crime and had read a lot of true crime from when I was quite young, um, which, um, oh, you know, if I did, wasn't an artist, I would have loved to have been a detective or something like oh, that. Yes. <laughs> I was interested in in detective and investigative processes and the kind of imagery even then before all the kind of CSIs and stuff we're familiar with now, um, yeah, that were in the books. This image does have a sense of, and, and actually quite a lot of your subsequent images and series have this sense of, you know, this aura of mystery like something has just happened or something is about to happen or what happened to these people or, you know, what went on in this setting. So there is that sort yeah. of um, undercurrent, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and I think it's just something I'm finally attuned to because of my personal history. But, yeah, I love that you can see that and that people do see that because that is what I'm kind of choosing um, the imageries on, like they're kind of, poignance in terms of what they what stories they're telling about the people who inhabit that space or the possibility of who might do that yeah you know there is an interesting analogy there between you know detectives and like the ones we see on telly miss marple Mm -hmm. and vera and all of them and artists it's about observing and seeing things that that generally people look past or people don't deem as important or people yeah. don't consider. And and I do think that is something that is wonderful about artists, their powers of observation and how they bring that to their work yeah. and, and that sense of mystery that, that they offer the viewer. I totally agree. I think, um, yeah, I totally agree. It is about the powers of observation. If we talk about some of the series, the ongoing series, bodies of works that you have done, rather than, you know, a finite set work that leads to an exhibition or something like that, I'm thinking of Settlement in particular, mm-hmm. um, the sort of the real estate project that you have done for quite a period mm. of time. But it also sort of feeds into, I guess, your a, a, a more of a political um, motivation within your yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to chat a bit about settlement and how how it, and it actually it also is also about the home. Yes. So I imagine that it goes back to your inquiring mind about home and what is yeah, home. Yeah, that's true. And there's so much going on with the imagery. I mean, it started when I discovered the images um, online when I got an iPad and um, I was. I my life circumstances where I was moving cities all the time, kind of trying to find security and stability, yeah, um, you know, a job, <laughs> and I had a family. I wanted to, you know, buy a house, and just from living as an artist and the kind of opportunities you get as an artist don't actually provide the circumstances to to create that situation. Um, so, you know, there was a huge conflict in my life between being an artist and, you know, trying to kind of support my family and give some security to my family. Um, so anyway, I start looking for a property. I've got a budget. I can't afford anything in the city. <laughs> um, 
you know, I start kind of looking in that budget um, category, which was to, it started like when was it, 2007, with um, $250,000 was my budget. And, again, like I was always intrigued with the relationships between the person who was taking the photograph and the people who were looking at the photograph and how they seemed to be in different spaces. So whoever's looking at it, it's almost erasing what's there with their tape measure in hand or in their mind's eye. It's a possibility of their life. It's like this is your life if you lived in this house. (laughs) Um, And, of course, that was socioeconomically kind of categorised because I was looking under $250,000. I just started collecting the imagery and because it was just so compelling, you know, their potential stages for people's lives, not just an incident but actual whole lives. So it felt a little like I was also creating an archive, a document of how people have lived and in the past. And these are kind of images that would be otherwise thrown away, like once their purpose to sell the house is, is fulfilled, there's, it holds no value to anyone. So, mm-hmm. you know, in a way I felt as with my slideshow land project when I was buying slides on eBay, that I was kind of rescuing them and kind of keeping these family stories together in a way. It's interesting thinking about the context of those images, plucking them offline, mm-hmm. selectively plucking them offline and on, from online, yeah. sorry, and then, and then printing and exhibiting them within a gallery. Yeah. They talk so much. They are so powerful really they talk so much about not just home and you know Mm. real estate but they talk about you know the precariousness of of suburban life for so many people they talk about class structure in Australia they talk about really what it is that we value um, in in um, our society and you know artists do lead a precarious existence and whilst artworks in some cases may go for you Mm. know extraordinary amounts of money people desire them and acquire them um, which is also terrific because artists then get fed you know for many artists it's a very precarious existence and and that that particular body of work really resonates with me in that regard. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, I agree. It is a precarious, like when people joke about it, you know, starving in garrets and all of that kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, the sacrifices you're making as an artist are incredibly, you know, they are a huge sacrifice when you get to the other end of your life and you're not just out of art school thinking, you know, whatever you were thinking that, you know, art careers happen by magic and, you know, if you work hard and you're talented, it'll all fall into place, um, which isn't the case. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, I totally love, I love kind of undermining those kind of illusions, I suppose. Well, in a way it's a bit like also putting your detective hat yeah. on again and and revealing things that people don't necessarily consider, look at, think about, they walk past. Because sometimes, you know, it's a harsh reality for people to deal yeah. with. Yeah, I know. I'm sometimes upset when I put them on Instagram and, like, the ones that are kitsch, or have, you know, quick kitsch taste qualities about them are the most popular. But, you know, I would probably put up much sadder images. Yeah, it's not just about taste or kitsch. It's actually real. These are real. 
Yeah. Like they're not yeah. they're not staged, they're not set up, it's not a narrative, it's yeah. not a fiction, it's reality. That notion of kitsch is so laden. Yes. What is kitsch to well, you? Well, I guess it's a kind of a taste thing to do with class. Um, so mm. when something's mass-produced or, you know, things like that, that, yeah, it's it's about class and taste basically. Mm. I'm interested in, in, you know, this particular series of yours because I think it actually speaks to um, particularly a you know, now mm. what's going on in Australia with COVID, with lockdowns, with with decimation through the all all of the art world, performing arts, visual arts, uh, what's happening with artists, and and in a way, actually, what what sustains us as as people at home now in lockdown, what actually sustains us going forward, what it is that we're looking for, and then conversely, the whole thing about trying to buy a house and real estate. Uh, in the major capital cities and how that's just gone totally nuts. So even though you started this series a while yeah. ago, you know, it, it, it still has extraordinary currency. In a way, maybe that's the way artists can be, the canary in the, in the you know, thing because, yeah, we're experiencing things like this kind of precarity is just part of the job description. And, you know, artists come to cities because, you know, we want to meet other artists and that's where the centres are and that's like, you know, I dreamt, grew up dreaming of going to New York and places like that because you wanted to have diversity and variety and to kind of, you know, experience life in a full way, I suppose, that didn't feel available to you as a young person regionally. Um yeah, that seemed parochial or something. But, yeah, now it's possibly turning. I mean, there's a whole wave of people, not just artists, but people moving out of the cities um, mm. because of these, pro- you know, it's problematic that it's it's unaffordable. I just don't know how that's going to play out. It just keeps going, doesn't it? It's just like it's never going to yeah. end. I mean, I do think culture will be the driver for sustaining all of those you know, newly populated, larger populated that regional centres, culture in its broadest forms. You know, that's what that's what people see. I agree. I think, yeah. Culture and community. Yeah. You just mentioned New York, but you did go to New York. Yeah, I did. I got to live that dream to skip to yeah. skip off so, merrily so you, to New York, like I was going to live happily yeah. ever after. <laughs> how how long did you live in New York? Um, for? About four and a half years, all up at the end. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, no, it was yeah. it was an amazing experience. I was fortunate to win a or be awarded a um, Samstag scholarship and study at Columbia University. So it was just amazing. But I did go there with my one year old son and my partner Mark Hislop, who's also an artist and. Um, you know, that was tough. I was probably 34. Um, most of my fellow students were in their 20s. Um, I had a kid. Um, you know, uh, New York's a professional kind of place, you know, like with a child, you're very – I couldn't go out to openings or do a lot of things that you needed to do to network and stuff in a city like New York. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean I didn't get a lot out of it. It was amazing. What did you study? Uh, I did a Master's of Fine Art. Um, so mm-hmm. what, yeah, the, an MFA. And and I gather you were there for 
911. Oh, we were, yeah. That was um, the second year we were there. I got there in 2000 and, yeah, the second year that we went back, yeah. Did that shift your practice? Did that shift what you were, what you deemed really important to pursue or did that? Um, It would have had an extraordinary effect on just living in New York. Yeah, it did. Um, There was a lot of paranoia at that time, not for me, but just in generally just kind of, adjusting to, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it possibly did. I made a work about it actually where I interviewed people to ask them what were they doing when they heard when September 11 happened because it was almost like everyone had a story or someone called me, I was walking past the TV and I noticed it. Mm -hmm. I gather you've recently finished a PhD. Um, is yeah, yeah, I did my PhD at Deakin University and finished in 2019. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. That's a huge effort. Congratulations. It was a huge effort, yeah. <laughs> and in a nutshell, what did you pursue? What did you focus on? I Well, I was fortunate that I got to do a kind of accelerated PhD actually and it was based on the fact that I had done the research project, particularly the Countess project. It was actually a very good process for me because prior to doing the PhD, um, you know, it was like a very segregated activities, like there was Countess and that was my Countess job and then there was my art practice and yeah. and they weren't seen together. Do you know what I mean? And the yep. PhD allowed me to write the narrative that actually found the threads and brought them together into one story to kind of go, yeah, Countess isn't actually that far outside of the other things I do. It uses observation, um, you know, it collects things that people aren't looking at and tries to expose them, um, you know, it does a number of different things. So it was really good for me on a personal level because I felt fractured and I felt like mm-hmm. people wanted to talk to me about Countess but they weren't really looking at my artwork and I wasn't doing Countess, you know, it was almost like you could, you could only have one hat on. Artists can wear many hats and and can get categorised in certain areas. So I think that is a wonderful thing for the Countess Report to actually become part of your art practice. So so let's go back to the beginning of the Countess Report because it is something I would like to talk about. Could, could you describe what the Countess Report is? I gather it began as a blog you wrote in in the early 2000s, 2008, something Yeah, like that's that. right. And there were blogs. That was the blog era in that time. And, um, and, of course, it was freely accessible. It didn't cost any money. We had social media come on the scene in 2005, so you were able to kind of bring attention to your blog through broadcasting on these kind of platforms and uh, it was also a time when people were doing a little bit anonymously like there was the art life blog in Sydney that was terribly popular and we did who's writing it and that was all very fun to not know and you know speculate on that and so I kind of just modeled myself on that really and um, when I saw the word count and I noticed that the word cunt was in it I was like oh perfect I'll be the countess like yeah and that women count in the art world was the kind of thing of it because I guess I was sick of this kind of pretending like we were all on the same you know we're all getting the same opportunities when obviously I was experiencing not being taken seriously and I knew that my 
fellow friends who were artists, particularly women, although artists will be frustrated all the time and it's hard to feel like, you know, you don't have typical career paths, you don't get rewarded for what you do. It's not like you're doing it for ego strokes or anything either or for the attention necessarily, but it's almost like it gets measured like that, worse so now with Instagram and things like that. So it was actually when I went to Columbia that I noticed like I was in a class and it was literally 50-50 men and women in this class, which was highly unusual because I'd just gone, you know, through an undergraduate where you you'd lucky to have 25% of the class as men. Um, And, of course, I could easily see the equation, well, how come you have to go to art school to be considered an artist but only a quarter of these, you know, people who are graduating are men but they're kind of getting the majority of the opportunities and all the thing after that. I mean, it was a simple equation. I'd been involved in lots of kind of, organizations around you know I was a first draft director yes yep. I was involved in a housing co-op called Ultimo project with um mm-hmm. people you know I, so I'd had it I worked in youth work and in community organization and not-for-profit organizations and non-government organizations so I kind of had mm-hmm. some you know yeah I'd had some training and you know activism and actions that could address problems, you know what I mean? In a constructive yeah. way as opposed to just, you know, some sort of moral outrage. Yeah, yeah, but, that's right. Know, there was some sort of constructive approach yeah. that you could build towards. Yeah, that's right. How did you gather your data? I mean, you're obviously good at, you know, gathering images and seeking things out. And But in terms of actual data, was the art world open to sharing information? Well, all the way along it's always been about on websites or catalogues and so on, because art kind of does use documentation or takes documentation seriously, naming things seriously, provenance, you know, all of these details are surrounded in a wall label, like, you know. Yeah, and, it, and it's standard. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and also artists kind of mimic these structures to kind of, because they want to seamlessly slot into them, <laughs> you know, so they're producing their websites and stuff in the same kind of manner. Um, and so we see someone's CV, I mean, not so much these days, but it was quite common to know someone's date of birth and where they were born and, like, you know, all of this kind of stuff. All the data was there and, I, I mean, it was really the internet. Um, I could do it from home, you know, I could look at their website and even I justified well, if they weren't putting everything on their website and there were more women showing, well, just the fact that it wasn't on their website was enough to say that there weren't. If they're not promoting them, well, then, yeah. So, yeah. It's not there. Yeah. Mm. And it wasn't that hard. It was literally, you know, little one, two, three, four, five, you know, like you would do on a prison wall. How many days you, I mean, I just count it up. Yeah. It, it sort of also goes back to your, your, your obvious discipline um, to your practice and commitment to your voice as an artist to actually maintain that dedication to build the Countess Report to what it has become because it has grown and now actually is a force to be reckoned with, holding the art world to account. And in a way it's sort of come into its own. I, I imagine the Countess Report actually shaped the know my name, hashtag know my name. 
sort of Instagram movement and then subsequent exhibitions locally, far more than something like the Me Too movement did. Oh, thank you so much. One of the reasons the Countess Report got such a broad reach was really through um, the support of the Sheila Foundation because um, John Crothers, the son of Sheila Crothers and her collection of women artists that was donated to the University of Western Australia, um, you know, approached me like in 2012 after I'd been doing the blog for four years just to give a talk and, um, you know, I did that and, yeah, and then he said, oh, we're doing a foundation, we want to do research, would you be interested in doing something? And I proposed doing a kind of benchmark, well, I'll just count more things, you know, so that's what I went about doing. It took me a year to do it, you know, with help and, you know, things, and I had to learn a lot. Um you know, finding, you know, just how to put it all together. But I could use a lot of skills that I already had, so that was good. And and then once that came out, it really did make a huge impact, much, and yeah. I, it was a bit overwhelming, to be honest. Immediately, like a year later, I, I was very keen to, you know, bring other people into it because I mm-hmm. couldn't manage it, really. And, um, well, I couldn't see, yeah, I wanted it, I wanted to work with other people, Um Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was fortunate to um, meet and have on board Miranda Samuels and Amy Pekrovic mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. together, you know, we reflected on what Countess has done, what we should do going forward. And, you know, we've thought of lots of different things, but at our core is that we collect data and that we should keep this benchmarking report going every four years and Um, That's basically the core of what we do now. So the first report um, that we did after the, so we did the 216 report. The dates can be a little confusing because um, I counted all the exhibitions in 2014. It took me a year to put it together and it was published in 2016. Um, So then we counted 2018 and that was published in 2019. And it was our opportunity to address, you know, the gender categories and um, and to bring that to the fore. And yeah, so each count we want to kind of have some emphasis that does um, extend what we're doing a little bit um, and push those boundaries and use the data in different ways. So Amy took charge and organised the second report that came out in 2019 and Miranda is doing the, the next report and um, she's interested in um, data sovereignty and Indigenous data and so she's invited um, Georgia Mokak, who works at NAVA, to co-author the report with her and together they're going to be having an emphasis in there also on Indigenous um data and also I guess to highlight um, the different pathways to being an artist um, that, you know, at present it privileges artists who go to certain art schools and um, so on. So, yeah, the Indigenous data kind of does allow for different models to be explored. We do, we can tell at a glance that the closer you get to a museum or, you know, a position of power like that, the more likely Indigenous or not that you will be male. Um, so that that stands true for Indigenous artists as much as non-Indigenous artists. Um, but, yeah, we're going to 
drill down into that data in the next report. It seems to be making a difference in certainly how uh, national and state collection-based art institutions um, are thinking about their practices with the Know My Name exhibitions at the National Gallery of Australia, um, uh, the exhibitions collecting policies shifting at the Art Guard of New South Wales. Are the funding bodies, which, you know, the Australia Council, Create New South Wales, you know, and the other state funding bodies, which are crucial to... Um, supporting, you know, grassroots and ex- uh, organisations, exhibitions, opportunities for artists and, as you say, pathways for careers. Are the funding bodies taking notice of what you're doing? Um, yeah, they, I think they are because traditionally I have um, looked at Australia Council funding and other funding and that's been part of the reports as well. Um, and it was always at best 50-50, like it was closer to 50-50 than any other part of the sector, like in the galleries or so on, where women were lucky to get up to 40. Um, that was originally when I first started. But, you know, I've just co-written a book with an uh, author, Melinda Rackham, about the Countess Project. And one of the things we unpack in the book is basically, and like the Throsby Report says this, um, and we've collected this data too, there's more women operating in the visual arts than men. Like that's a fact. So Mm 50-50 is kind of like it's not a representative. So it's still actually advantaging men than it is women if we just think 50-50 is the answer here. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, I think it's been important to make that point as well. Um, Like just because you're 50-50 doesn't mean it's all fine. And also um, that diversity, like not just of gender but of, you know, ethnic background and so on, shouldn't just be kind of played out for, you know, in certain categories. It should be broad across genders, not, um, mm-hmm. yeah, things like that. So, But how to collect that data becomes more problematic when you're just doing that on observation. So, you know, as we've progressed with the project you know, we are able to and we've been, you know, lucky that, you, you know, institutions are cooperating and actually providing the data, um, so which has a lot more detail to it, yeah. And for people listening, if you think the book is just some dry series of stats and graphs, I've got a lovely description here, um, a heady mix of rigorous research, harrowing and humorous blog rants, hard crunch data, theoretical musings, intimate revelations and visual arts works. Uh, I think that's something that actually government and the ABS could look at. You never know, you might get a gig to produce their papers and reports coming up. Yeah, no, that's that's Melinda's incredible wordsmithing there. Yeah, yeah, it's fabulous. I love it. So you've obviously had fun doing it as well. Oh, yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, particularly writing the book because when I did um, bring Miranda and Amy into Countess, I, I thought, oh, well, I'll just bow out now and kind of let the project, you know, go where it needs to go, led by, you know, necessarily by a new generation of artists. Um, but Amy and Miranda really wanted to work with me, so, like, I've kind of stuck around. I hope not about, like, a bad smell, but I don't think so. But, um, yeah, so the book was conceived at that time, so it's kind of been a funny situation Um but, yeah, of writing the book where I thought that that'll be my swan song and uh, now I'm you know, out of here. But anyway, 
I wrote that with Melinda, someone I went through art school with um, back in the 90s. So we had some shared experiences but had taken different directions but had an understanding of where each other were coming from. So it was really awesome. I like working with other people, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, working as an artist with your own practice at times can be lonely. It is lonely, yeah. That's true. When you talked about um, your PhD and looking at and, and melding the Countess report into your wider art practice, is Countess, a, has she become an artwork in herself? Does she incorporate arts practices in the way that the data is perhaps um, uh, displayed or understood, you know, in exhibitions or performances, something, you know, say beyond writing? I think that's something that I'd like to develop going forward and we have had opportunities you know, collectively in Countess Report to do that. We did a project with Campbelltown Art Centre where we made an artwork, but it was in response to their policies and um, and data and the kind of nature of data itself. I think there's a lot of potential there and my collaborators are interested in that as well. Um, it'll be about the opportunities that arise. Um, but I think one of the important things with the Countess report is that we do remain independent and, um, and that, you know, our, our um, identities as artists isn't erased in the, in the process because when we have been contacted by institutions, I mean, it's like they want a little private conversation with us about their data or, or we could be consultants in some way. And it's like, well, that's not actually my training or my job. I'm an artist. This is what we do, you know. So it's it's kind of trying not to be too institutionalised and kind of be in situations where you might be working exclusively for institutions where we really see ourselves as artists run and that we're working for the artists as much as, yeah, that's really who we're working for by by critiquing the institutions. As with all good research, it has to be independent yeah. in order to be, you know, truly relevant. It's actually been freeing because, like, in lots of ways as an artist, you can sometimes be a bit beholden to institutional kind of requirements. And if we're going to make all these sacrifices and be an artist and do it, well, damn it, I'm not going to go back. <laughs> And do it in a way that suits me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good on you. And on that note, I will say thank you very much. It's been fabulous talking with you. I've so enjoyed our discussion. And I really look forward to not just seeing more of your work in your galleries at Gallery Pom Pom and Hugo Michel in um, Adelaide, Gallery Pom Pom in Sydney, but also seeing where the Countess Report goes because it is such a, a worthy and vital, you know, piece in um, in arts practice in Australia at the moment. So thank you, Alex. No, thank you, Fiona. I really enjoyed talking. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Elvis as much as I did. It's always fascinating to hear more about what inspires and motivates an artist and how that forges a career. You can find the links for Elvis Richardson and the Countess Report on our show notes. And for more information on other episodes, go to our Instagram page, Fine Art Fiona. Conversations on the Fine Art Fiona podcast are created by Fiona McIntosh and produced by Simon Grant. Thanks so much for listening.